Hi, I'm Sigal Samuel, sitting in today for Sean Illing. I'm going to be honest. For most of my life, I haven't really cared that much about animals. I figured I just wasn't an animal person. Then the pandemic started. Suddenly there was all this time when I was stuck at home, sitting in front of my window, watching the birds. And I just became completely obsessed with them. I started reading books about how smart birds are, like how crows can solve all these really complex puzzles. A few months later, I went snorkeling for the first time, and I got to meet a couple of octopuses in the sea. They played hide-and-seek with me, camouflaging themselves to try and trick me. Their intelligence wowed me so much that I have no desire to ever eat calamari again. I even met a pod of dolphins, and their curiosity and playfulness were so palpable to me that I felt a bond right away. I think a lot of us feel some kinship with animals that we see a bit of ourselves in. But what about other animals that aren't as obviously smart, at least from a human perspective? If they're conscious, or even just alive, do they deserve just as much of my concern? And beyond whether animals seem like us, what about their relationship to us? Does it matter if they live around us humans or in the wild? If an antelope somewhere in the African savanna is suffering from some antelope disease, that's not the kind of thing I need to do something about, is it? I'm Sigal Samuel, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Martha Nussbaum. If I were to list all the books she's written and prizes she's won, it would probably take up this whole episode. So I'm just going to say this. She's a very, very big deal in the philosophy world. Like a big enough deal that her essays were required reading in my philosophy classes in undergrad. She's taught at Harvard and Oxford, and now she teaches ethics and law at the University of Chicago. But Martha is not one of those ivory tower philosophers whose ideas just sit in a dusty book on some shelf. She wants her ideas to change laws in the real world. Typically, she's focused on laws that affect humans. But her daughter, Rachel, who made a career working for the rights of animals, got her to care more and more about this issue over the years. Rachel died in 2019, and as an act of what she calls constructive mourning, Martha just wrote a new book called Justice for Animals. The goal of the book is to present a revolutionary new theory about what we human beings owe animals. But Martha started by telling me about the old theories and why she doesn't think they're good enough. So first of all, there's a very dominant theory which is used in law right now. It's used by the Non-Human Rights Project. Stephen Wise is a very fine lawyer for animal rights. And he follows the traditional idea of a ladder of nature where humans are at the top but he thinks that there are a few animals, particularly great apes, but also whales and elephants, that are enough like humans to deserve to count as persons in law. 
Now, let me say that I don't think that's the whole of what's on his mind as a human being. <laughs> but as a lawyer, this is what he thinks he can get judges to care about. Right. So, you know, he thinks that where the world is, is that we care more about animals that seem more like us. Now, first of all, I think there's a lot of empirical gaps in his theory because, I mean, nature doesn't present a single ladder. It presents remarkable horizontal complexity. There are animals who have senses that we totally lack, like birds. They can navigate by perceiving magnetic fields, which is something we can't do. Dolphins can figure out what's inside an object by echolocation, which we cannot do. <laughs> and second, it's just the wrong reason to care about doing justice to another creature, that it's like us. I think that would be a bad reason if it was another human being. And of course, a lot of people do think that the fact that a certain group is more like us ethnically or religiously or so is a reason to treat that group better. But we, I think we can recognize that as a bad reason. But with animals, I think we need to recognize that as a bad reason. Our reasons should be because of what is happening to them, not because they're like us. Mm -hmm. And so then the biggest problem is that he has absolutely nothing to say about the terrible sufferings of animals that he deems not sufficiently like us. Mm -hmm. That is to say, all birds, most vertebrates, all invertebrates. And so the worst horrors that I feel we need to deal with immediately are the sufferings of animals that we uh, raise for food in the factory farming industry. He has nothing to say about that. So that, to me, makes the theory a real non-starter. And it seems to me like that ladder of nature approach, which goes back many centuries, the scala natura approach, this idea that animal species are arranged in this hierarchy with humans at the top, closest to God. Typically, it's how people think of that is the ones at the top are ones we imagine to be very intelligent or have this capacity for rationality. And I think like more recent animal science from people like the primatologist Franz de Waal has really shown us that Every species actually has its own brand of smarts, as you were saying, with dolphins and echolocation or how birds navigate. It's just that each species has its own brand of smarts that are adapted to its specific needs and its specific environment, right? That's absolutely right. And of course, we've also recognized the amazing abilities of creatures that we used to think of as very stupid. Mm -hmm. We see now that birds are some of the most complicated creatures. And for a long time, they used the expression, bird brain to need a real dummy. Right. But that was because they thought that if they're physiologically not very like us, like birds don't have a neocortex, they could not possibly be very intelligent. But in fact, by a different evolutionary path, birds arrived at similar destinations, and they have remarkable abilities. Now that we know so much more about animals, we can't afford to think in this crude way. So tell me about the next approach that you explore, which is the utilitarian approach. I know that, you know, philosophers from Jeremy Bentham all the way through to Peter Singer today have really popularized this one. Well, of course, it's done great good in the world. And I think if we could only go as far as that approach goes, that is curtailing needless pain, that would already be quite a lot. But basically, Bentham thought that the only good thing in life is pleasure and the only bad thing in life is pain. All the other things that people deem good and bad are just variations on that one single theme. But that's much too simple because both humans and other animals 
pursue many different things in their lives. They want to have social relationships with one another. Animals don't need only to be free from pain. They need social relationships with other members of their species, often with members of other species. They also need lots of space to move around in. And sometimes they feel pain when they don't have those things, but not all the time because an animal grows up in a zoo in a single enclosure. It doesn't know, but it's a deprivation nonetheless. So in short, it doesn't take account of these many deprivations that animals, and of course humans, I mean, I've criticized utilitarianism for humans in similar terms. <laughs> what we need is an approach that thinks of forms of life as complicated mm -hmm. and having many different parts, not reducible to one thing. Another problem with utilitarianism is that it thinks about the good state as a state that is, an animal should be in a state of pleasure, or in Singer's version, should be in a state of satisfaction. But both humans and other animals don't want to end up in a kind of happy state. They want to be active. Mm -hmm. They want to be agents in creating their own lives. So just as in the human world, it gives bad guidance, making people think about, well, we'll give them some food, rather than trying to render them active in earning their own food and so forth. So it is a very bad way of dealing with human hunger and poverty. So too, in the animal world, animals are active beings. And what they want is not just a comatose state of not being pain. They want to be active strivers. Right. Then the third thing is that utilitarianism is very preoccupied with averages. So what is the social goal is supposed to be the greatest either total pleasure or the greatest average pleasure, depending which version we use. But actually, that means that the ones who are at the bottom of society's ladder don't get any special attention. And that would mean that in the calculus between humans and other animals, it might turn out that the pleasure of humans in eating meat and so forth would outweigh the pain inflicted on animals. So in short, it's not individual-focused enough. It views individuals only as containers of pleasure and pain, rather than as separate beings who should be treated, each one of them, as an end and none as a mere means to the ends of others. Right. So, I mean, utilitarianism, on the one hand, it seems like it moved us forward somewhat because, you know, I kind of like that Bentham said the right question for us to ask about animals is not, can they reason, but can they suffer? Like, that seems like a helpful intervention in the conversation, but focusing just on suffering or pain and pleasure as this single calculus also kind of brings up these issues that you're mentioning. And it sounds like at the end there, you were kind of getting at the issue of like, it sort of reduces every creature, whether human or animal, to just this container that is sort of interchangeable with all other containers. We're all just vessels that can contain this many units of pleasure or pain, as opposed to a more Kantian approach, right? So this is another approach you talk about in your book, an approach inspired by Immanuel Kant, who famously insisted that we shouldn't treat others as a means to an end. They each have dignity. They're an end in themselves. And it seems like you really like that idea, but when it comes to contemporary philosophers like Christine Korsgaard, who've tried to use Kant to build up a theory of what we owe animals, you ultimately reject that approach, too. Why is that? Well, the first thing to say is that Korsgaard diverges 
greatly from the historical Kant, who thought we could just use animals as means to our own ends. So she wants us to treat animals the way Kant thought we should treat humans. So that's great. I'm all in favor of that. And I also should say, I mean, Korsgaard was actually my PhD student, and Mm. she wrote a dissertation on Kant and Aristotle with me and John Rawls. And there is still a lot of Aristotle in the book. The Aristotelian part is that she sees animals, I think, quite rightly, as creatures who pursue a wide variety of distinctive ends, and that that's what they should be able to do. So I agree with much of that. What I don't agree with is that she retains the focus on the idea of complicated ethical deliberation, which she thinks only humans are capable of. Now, she quite clearly says that doesn't make us better. But it does mean, she says, that only we can be active citizens producing the results that treat animals better. Now, I think that is just much too simple because animals are very active in indicating what they need and what they want. They have marvelous, complicated ways of speaking, signaling. Some are language-like. Some are just indicative of their preferences. She calls animals passive citizens. Mm. They're not passive citizens. They have voices and they articulate what they need. And we should be listening to that and take account of that just the way that Right now, I think we've learned that people with cognitive disabilities who may not be able to use human language, we should listen to them. And so I think that she's just treating animals in the end too in a somewhat condescending way by suggesting that they're not capable of indicating actively what they need. Yeah, it seems like what's really tricky about Korsgaard's position is she wants to maintain this very Kanti view that there's something really special setting us apart from other animals, like our rationality. And I actually found it interesting in your book, you write, her position would not be uncomfortable if she simply said, this is the human form of life, and to some extent it is different from other forms of life. All lives are uniquely wonderful in their own way. And like, honestly, that sounds great to me. And I kind of wondered when reading that, like, great, why can't that just be the view? Just without the Kantian framing of humans are ends or animals are ends. For me personally, it feels like a really weird claim to make about anyone, human, non-human, because sort of in my way of seeing it, no creature objectively has rights, right? Like this thing called rights is a fictional story that we as humans construct. Like rights don't somehow fall from the heavens or emerge from the essence of the creature. And so I'm just trying to understand, do you disagree with that philosophically or do you agree with it philosophically and just use the language of rights because it's a really powerful rhetorical tool? It can be useful in politics and law? Well, first of all, both Korsgaard and I agree that there's a sound argument for ascribing rights to both humans and animals. Both of us find ourselves thrown into the world, the rather hostile world, needing all kinds of things, including property, to live and to do what we want to do. And it's a legal concept. I think that's what rights always are, is a legal concept. Mm -hmm. So what I think metaphysically has nothing to do with it, because my overall position, in my view, is that in political principles and legal principles, we should never include any controversial metaphysical positions. This is what John Rawls said famously in political liberalism, that if we're in a pluralistic society where people differ about metaphysics, we should never include in our political principles these controversial metaphysical claims about which people differ. Now, Korsgaard does not, I mean, one of my problems with her book 
is that she never comes to grips with that argument of Rawls's. So she actually does allow herself to make some controversial metaphysical claims, namely that all value is the creation of various forms of subjectivity, etc. And I just think we shouldn't say anything about that one way or the other. We should try to frame our principles in a philosophically abstemious way, not carrying away the controversial metaphysical claims, but using the language of rights to talk about an ethical reality that's common to human and animal lives. I guess I'm just questioning whether it's possible to talk about an ethical reality without making some kind of controversial metaphysical claim? Well, I mean, why so? I mean, we we live together and we get along in many ways. When the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was framed, people from many different cultures who had many different religions and metaphysical beliefs got together and said, well, we better not use the language of the immortal soul. We better not use this or that. Mm -hmm. But we can agree to use a thin, common ethical language of human dignity. And that's what they agreed to base the Universal Declaration on. So that, I'm doing the same thing. I'm following that lead and doing it for similar reasons, that we want to get along in a world in which people disagree about fundamental metaphysics, about things like, is there an immortal soul? Is there life after death? And so forth. Yeah. Ethics, too, of course, is controversial. But in ethics, If we leave out these religiously controversial things, I think people can actually come into an agreement. If you ask me, Martha actually does make some controversial metaphysical claims. She argues that we can find out what objective moral rights an animal has by looking at that animal's objective capacities. How exactly does that work? That's what I'll ask her after a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Now that we've kind of deconstructed some of the competing theories about animals and kind of shown some of their shortcomings, tell me if the so-like-us approach doesn't cut it, utilitarianism doesn't quite cut it, Kant doesn't really cut it. Tell me about the approach that you think is better and that you're really fleshing out in this book, which is your capabilities approach. So for many years, I've been part of a large group of economists and philosophers working initially in human development ethics, 
who have been trying to urge that a good normative theory of society's development, when we're ranking societies to see how well they're doing, is what we call the capabilities approach. Now, capabilities don't mean skills. They mean substantive opportunities for choice. A capability is not, in other words, a skill that you have. It's an opportunity out there in the world that you have, which, of course, has to be aided by law and society to choose various things that you value. So the central question that we think should be asked in ranking nations in terms of their development is not what is their GDP per capita and not even how satisfied are the people, the utilitarian view, but rather what are people actually able to do and to be. So it focuses up close on the strivings of people and the various obstacles that come between people and the things that they want to get. And then it asks, what are they actually able to do and to be? And the answer to that question is the capability set that that person has. So for a long time, that's been used, and it's used in the Human Development Reports of the United Nations Development Program as a comparative measure of different human societies. Now, what I then did was to take the next step and to use it as a normative benchmark of basic justice. I said, well, we want to go further and not just compare A with B, but to say, what is a minimally just society? And then what you have to do in order to do that is to say which capabilities would be the most important, like a bill of basic rights for that society. And what I do in a variety of books that I've written on this is to say there are 10 basic capabilities that a minimally just society would foster, focusing on protection of life, protection of health, protection of bodily integrity, and the whole list of others. But see, already in one of the books that I wrote on this approach, I said that this approach can be extended to non-human animals. And you can see the natural extension because animals, too, are trying to get things that they value and they have various impediments. But over the years, I've gathered a small group of people around me who talk about this and we try to work it out. And now I think I'm ready to work it out in, in great detail to say what would a capabilities approach for animals be like. Now, the basic idea is that each creature would be entitled to have a minimal threshold level of opportunity to pursue the most important activities that are characteristic of its form of life as a member of that species. So the idea is that that means we look at a lot of different parts of the creature's life. It's not like utilitarianism in reducing everything to pleasure and pain. We say, well, what is it for an elephant to live well? And then we look at the different parts of an elephant's life that elephants seem to value. And of course, here you need to turn to people who actually have studied elephants in great detail and listened to them for years and years and years. And then you make the elephant capabilities list. This is what elephants should have. You make a different list for baboons, for birds, and so on. So, but each creature in its own way should be able to have a minimal level of opportunity to pursue the characteristic activities of that creature. And now I say should be able to because it leaves space for choice. So there are dolphins who are solitary and they don't want to go around with a large pod of dolphins. Fine. Mm. But they need to have that choice, that opportunity space. 
Right. So like just spitballing here, the capabilities approach list for, let's say, dolphins might be something like, you know, basic entitlements might be like life, health, bodily integrity, ability to swim over like large bodies of water, opportunities for social engagement, opportunities for play, right? Yeah. Well, of course, at the very high level of generality, it's going to be a lot of overlap with the human list yeah. because play is on the human list too. Right. But the form of play and the form of social engagement will be very different. And some creatures need only their own kind. They might like relationships with other species, but they don't need them. I think that's true of dolphins, it's true of elephants. But some creatures, particularly dogs, cats, horses, are characteristically social across the species barrier, and they particularly seem to need relationships with humans. So we add that in and so forth. Right. Okay. That makes sense because for an animal that's sort of evolved symbiotically with humans, then at this point, it might be part of their basic capabilities list to be able to have that interaction with a human, for example. Yeah, because there are people who think, oh, this is bad that they depend on humans. I've known people who would just like to let all the dogs and cats free and not have humans being in charge of them in any way. But of course, the thing is, now they've evolved in such a way that they're thoroughly dependent on humans. They cannot live well without humans. Mm -hmm. There are people who think we should therefore not breed them at all and let them go out of existence. But I don't hold that view, and I actually argue against that. But that means that their good will be defined in a way that includes human relationships. So I'm kind of curious, like when you're Thinking about the capabilities approach, what would that mean practically? Like what that would look like for the most commonly domesticated animals, pets, but also maybe farmed animals, animals used in research. Are there really sharp ways you think society would need to change to make room for accommodating animals' different capabilities? Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I mean, the first thing is the word pet. I think the word pet is insulting to animals. It suggests they're toys to be played with. And I do think that there are a lot of people who think their dogs and their cats, <laughs> their dogs and their cats, are just toys that they can play with. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, a lot of people adopted a dog or a cat because they were lonely. And then they took them back again now that they can go out and socialize. So, no, I would use the term companion animals. And I would ask the question what it is for a companion animal to live well. And I do think that society has to change quite a lot. So just starting there, most societies now have quite a lot of laws protecting companion animals from cruelty. Those laws are not very well enforced. So that brings us to the larger issue of animals lack legal standing. They can't be a plaintiff in a court action. Mm -hmm. A child with minimal cognitive ability, a human child, even though they couldn't, of course, go to court themselves, they can go to court represented by a guardian. And if they're being abused, there can be a suit brought with them as the plaintiff. That can't be the case right now for dogs, but it should be the case. If a dog is being abused and there is a law against it, then they can sue to demand enforcement of the law through a suitable guardian. What I have in mind, actually, for dogs and cats is very similar to what we now do with child welfare. Every city, every state has a Department of Child Welfare Services. And, for example, I, as a member of a university that has some projects that use young children, and so there are young children on our campus, I have to take every year a two-hour course in child welfare. Mm. So that, even though I'm not part of any of those projects, if I see a child on our campus 
who's being abused in any way. I become a mandatory reporter, and I must then right away call the Department of Child Welfare and say there's abuse to a child here. I think the same thing should be true with companion animals and with any animal who lives in close proximity to humans, namely that we would all become mandatory reporters of abuse to those animals. Now, what that would mean for dogs and cats would simply be more adequate enforcement of the laws that are there already, and it would be also more attention to things like the needs of dogs for adequate exercise. The law doesn't even really cover that, because most people don't give their dogs adequate exercise. They think it's okay to keep a large dog indoors most of the day and then maybe walk it once in the morning and once at night. Yeah. And they don't notice that it has tremendous psychological and physical impact on the health of that dog. For animals that are raised for food, oh boy, (laughs) all the animal protective laws at both the federal, state, and local level consciously omit the animals we raise for food. So the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is a very good law that was put in around the turn of the 20th century to protect migratory birds. But birds that are raised for food, uh uh-uh, they're not covered by that act. And the same is true for the Animal Welfare Act, another very good federal law. It even specifies how animals must be given adequate water, adequate food, and doesn't have anything to say about the animals that are raised for food. Now, I guess my end point would be that we don't eat animals at all, mm-hmm. for the most part, to prematurely deprive a sentient animal of life is wrong. So I think if there's actually going to be eating of meat, I would like in the long term to see it be only that kind of stem cell grown meat that we're beginning to hear about so much now. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, would taste like meat, but it doesn't involve killing. So that would be the long term. But in the short term, I'm an incrementalist, and I think we need to start by stamping out the worst abuses. Mm-hmm. And right now, the whole factory farming industry is a horror show. Yeah. And it's so bad that they've even gone to great lengths to get state laws forbidding people to tell what's going on there. Right. Those ag-gag laws. Yes, because they know that if people know about that, they would rise up in protest. Do the animals living in our homes or on our farms deserve more of our concern than animals out there in the wild? That's coming up after one last quick break. So we were talking about the eating of animals, and I'm glad you're mentioning this because probably the vegetarians and vegans listening to this might have some questions about how the capabilities approach would affect different farmed animals. And in the capabilities approach, you talk about really wanting to preserve the opportunity for animals to be able to strive for what they would naturally strive for. And you give as an example, you know, eating eggs. I think if I'm remembering right, you say if you have a hen who, let's say she has just laid eight eggs and you take four and you allow her to keep incubating some, That maybe seems okay because she's still getting to fulfill her striving. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that certain extreme vegan positions are not entailed by the capabilities approach. Someone can also 
add on things that I don't add on. But what the capabilities approach, as you quite rightly say, does promise a creature is the chance to fulfill their striving over a reasonably long life. No, I mean, here I'm not alone. I'm together with Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka in their book, Zoopolis, Mm -hmm. who think that the egg industry can actually be reformed in order to be ethically adequate in the way that you describe. Because eggs, cage-free eggs, and eggs that are curated in the way you describe can still make a profit. And that's happening, actually. About half the United States is now cage-free, and yet eggs are still sold, and they still it's still a business that people are willing to go into. Just to kick the tires on this a little bit, one thing I sort of wonder, some might object to this idea of, well, it's okay to take some of the eggs because the animal is still getting to fulfill some level of striving. The larger question that raises for me is whether... When we humans are having to make that capabilities list for different animals, I guess we kind of have to be the arbiters of what the essential capabilities are that end up on that list. Well, yes. I mean, this is always a difficult thing when we make choices for animals. Mm -hmm. It comes up when we ask, should I sterilize my cat? But I think here we have to use a principle of hypothetical consent, Mm. thinking about the alternatives in front of that animal and thinking what they would say if they were aware of the alternatives and they had a choice to make. Now, in the case of the egg, what the hen gets satisfaction out of is having some offspring and raising them, and the number is not so significant. Right. But in the case of sterilization, it's more tricky. If you think about, let's say, a male cat, the alternatives before the male cat would be to be a terrible nuisance and not find a good home and therefore be abandoned to the street, or to be neutered. Therefore, many humane organizations, and in fact most, are now mandating sterilization for the animals that are up for adoption, because they know that the alternative is the street. Mm -hmm. And then with the female animal, I think it's even clearer, because pregnancy is not chosen by that female animal who is mounted by a male animal. And most female animals will be depleted and exhausted by too many pregnancies, just like a human. Right. Now, of course, they can't know that, and they don't see any alternative. I think in the long run, maybe we'll get animal contraception developed, and there would be other options. But right now, the option for a female animal is pregnancy after pregnancy, the children of which inevitably would not all find good homes, and they would be abandoned to the street, or neutering at some point. I think the ideal point of neutering would be after the cat or dog has had one litter. I do think that's the satisfaction that the creature ought to have. If we were in a world where there were not hundreds and countless strays being abandoned to the street, that would be my best policy. Yeah. I want to pick up on what you were just saying about contraceptives and talk a little bit about animals in the wild, actually. In your book, you actually go beyond just advocating for us to do more to take good care of companion animals, uh, farmed animals. You entertain this idea and defend this idea of actually doing things to help animals in the wild, and you actually complicate that whole idea of the wild. But I just want to be totally honest with you. When I first encountered this idea a year or two ago, I honestly just thought it was like laugh out loud ridiculous. I could get on board with the idea that maybe humans should help animals that they've domesticated. You know, we have some kind of responsibility to them. But there's like a difference between fixing a harm that we as humans have caused and then like 
proactively helping wild animals, preventing them from getting a disease or even from being eaten. But some people really do make these arguments. And one thing you said in your book actually did really make me think, and it was your point that there's actually no such thing anymore as wild nature, because actually all spaces are under human control. And so we do have that responsibility even to wild animals. Can you just explain how that can be? Is there any wild actually left? Well, there is no place, unless maybe on some other planet, that is not right now controlled by human beings. Take the land, all the animals that are so-called wild animals are on wildlife refuges that are curated by nations or in various kinds of spaces within nations that belong to those nations and are superintended by them and that are impacted by habitat depletion of various kinds that are human. Take the air, again, I mean, the conditions in which birds live are impacted by humans and humans control the kind of atmosphere we have now, the pollutants in it, and all of the dangers to birds that come with that, Mm -hmm. the buildings that birds crash into, and so forth. Then, in the seas, which might seem to be the last great frontier of wildness, humans are everywhere. We control the amount of plastic that is endangering the digestion of marine mammals. We control the amount of noise. This is a thing people don't realize. Most marine creatures navigate more by hearing than by sight or smell. And the noise pollution that's out there from humans is incredible. So, I mean, of course, most of these examples are examples of bad things that we've created. But the truth is there's absolutely no clear line between the conditions we've created and conditions that would be there if we had never existed. That's just a thought experiment that we can't do anymore because we don't know what the world would be like if humans had never existed. So what we do know is that right now we're in the driver's seat. We control the shape of those habitats, whether air, land, or sea, and we can do a lot to make them more conducive to animal flourishing. Does that mean that even for issues that aren't directly, directly, directly traceable to us, maybe a population imbalance between species. Should we be using contraception to tackle that? Well, population imbalance is almost always caused ultimately by things that humans control. Because, for example, why is it the villagers in Botswana think there are too many elephants? Well, it's because they have allowed human population to grow so much and the villages are multiplying And therefore, the elephants are squeezed, Mm -hmm. and they come into the villages, and they strip the bark from the trees, and then the villagers cry out. And so, in general, it's always a question of balance, and humans never attend to the balance. And so, usually, there seem to be too many wild horses, say the ranchers in Wyoming. Well, why do they say there are too many wild horses? They say that because they want to use the land for grazing their future factory-farmed cattle. So, it's always about humans trying to grab something that the animal might like to have. I think that if there's a population imbalance, first of all, humans have to control the human numbers. That's the first thing. But then there are sometimes cases where, let's say, the habitat could support a certain number of elks, but the elks have done well, so they're reproducing rapidly. And people say, oh, there are too many elks. Probably in this case, they're not saying it in a simply selfish way, but they're just noticing that the elks don't get enough to eat. Mm -hmm. What do we do? Well, one possibility is we introduce hunting. People can shoot the elks. I don't like that for obvious reasons. 
second possibility, we introduce wolves so that they tear apart the elks. Well, I don't like that because it's a more painful death for the elks than it would be than even a bullet to the head. So I think better than either of those alternatives would be, I mean, suppose we concluded that humans have not really caused this problem. I still think that animal contraception should be investigated as part of the solution. Because with human population, we've learned how to do contraception. With animals, we haven't really learned forms of contraception that don't damage the animal. We need to work on that. Mm -hmm. But if we do the research and we get forms of contraception that don't pinch on the life of the animal. And we have actually done that for smaller animals, for rats, for example. So rather than having exterminators leaving out poison for rats, right now a lot of cities are using contraception for rats, which is much less cruel and it's quite effective. This is something I really like about your approach, that it recognizes that we as society have many different, important, and irreducible values. And so sometimes they're naturally going to be in tension with each other, and we're inevitably going to face tragic dilemmas or trade-offs sometimes between competing values. And sometimes the best we can do is try to find the path that seems to minimize the pain that would be experienced by, let's say, rats, but also that protects what is maybe like a reasonable value for humans, which is not to have pests around that might harm us. Yeah. So do you think we should intervene in any way when it comes to predators in the wild, like lions and gazelles being eaten? Well, I think right now the answer is no, but I do think we should regard it as a problem because these creatures suffer just as much being killed by another animal as they would if they were being killed by a human. And where we live with an animal, we always do interfere. We don't encourage cats to kill little birds. We teach them a substitute behavior. And so long as the cat is happy with the substitute behavior, like, say, a lot of scratching or whatever, then things are okay. So we need to at least investigate substitute behaviors Mm -hmm. for animals who are under our control in the wild. But given that we don't know how to do that, and given that it's really, we'll mess it up if we attempt to do that. Right now, I think the main thing is don't make money off of cruelty, which is happening. So most eco-safaris involve people who love cruelty, paying a lot of money to the tourist agencies in Botswana or whatever, to go and see this predation taking place. And I call this sado-tourism. So I think the first step that we could take in the direction of limiting predation is not to encourage it to happen by having an industry that makes a lot of human money off of it. And that might mean that that species of wild dog would ultimately become extinct. But for me, it's not the species that matters. It's the individual creatures. Martha, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you a lot. Eric Janikis is our producer. Amy Drostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea@vox.com. 
And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, send it to the animal lovers in your life, send it to the people like me who think that they're not animal lovers. Maybe this is the moment where that changes for them. Who knows? I'm Sigal Samuel. I write about the mind from animal intelligence to artificial intelligence on Vox.com. Feel free to check me out there. Sean Illing will be back next week with new episodes of The Gray Area. Episodes of the show drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.